Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. In this episode, we'll be discussing data-driven ways of working and data in organizations. I am delighted to welcome Sam Crochet-Jones, a data expert and currently head of Digital Transformation Center of Excellence. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi. And thank you for agreeing to come and share your thoughts with me on data, data-driven ways of working and data in organizations. Well, pleasure to be here. So you're a data expert and an expert in AI. Probably so. You're correct. <laughs> I know you've rolled out data competence and data-driven ways of working in large and small organizations. So my first question is going to be, what is the role of data and big data in organizations today? Sure. So I think it's a great question. I think the simplest way of answering it, I'd say, is data's role is, is to provide visibility mm. into situations to give that visibility to people to make informed decisions on, on what they should be doing. Uh, so it, it, data really like provides the visibility into what happened, potentially why it was happening, in what circumstances, having what context, et cetera, et cetera. And this really is what we call um, data-driven decisions. So through that visibility into what has happened, you know, I can get the right information to the right person in the right time, uh, in the right context, and, and enable them to make sort of these informed evidence-based decisions uh, throughout the whole organization. So you know, we're not talking about a select few people. We're really talking about anyone within that business can make, you know, a decision within HR, a decision within operations, a decision in product, a decision in, in, in strategy can make those decisions. So it's basically giving, giving them insight they didn't have before. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And what does that change for them then? And I, at a strategic level, but also at an operational level? I think the key thing is, is, is to sort of, first off, to understand why this change has happened. Mm-hmm. So the real driving force is the fact that, first off, it's financially possible because data storage is a lot cheaper now. Data processing is, is we're talking exponential reduction mm. in cost. And the technologies are there mm. to be able to achieve that. Um, and the skills are there. You know, the, the problem's been de-skilled a lot. It's a lot easier to sort of implement these things and, and people can find that skills. So first off, it's now for the first time very possible for large organizations mm. to be able to do this. And very uh, affordable, if I understand. Very affordable. Like 20 years ago. Not really possible. It would have cost so much money to actually do this. And, and the skills, you would have to hire university professors to be able to sort of get to this stage uh, from a technology point of view. And I think now today, it is very possible, but 20 years ago, it's not. So 20 years ago, you have this situation where you are kind of like, you have this experience-based gut feeling decision-making process where a select few of people are sort of collecting information from an organization that's rolling up, you know, mm. presentations, spreadsheets, this kind of stuff. And they're making these informed decisions, mainly based on their own personal experience and gut, gut feeling, uh, which is not a bad way to do it, but it's inefficient because you have, you know, two people making decisions mm. f- from an organization of about 30. Mm. So it's, and it's done manually, manually in terms done. of data. Very, very manually done. So it's subject to human error. So it's human error, you know, bespoke every mm. time you have to repeat it. Mm. It's, it's very manual process. And today, you know, a lot of that collection and organization process is no longer needed. Mm. And really the, the decision making can be pushed further down into the organization. So, you know, people who are a lot closer to the action are able to make the decisions by themselves in a, in a trust based organization. And, and it's much more feasible. So, you know, the, the experts at the top can still make high level strategic decisions, but they don't need to make all the decisions, you know, like product decisions can be made by product managers, not by chief product officers and, and this kind of stuff. And so like 
from a technology point of view, it's changed for sure. It's cheaper and all that kind of stuff. But the, the real complex part is the change in the organization that needs to happen to accompany it. Like you need to empower the guys who are making the decision. You need to, you know, deliver relinquish a little bit of the control over the decision making process and kind of stuff like that. So it is, that's the real big change. I mean, that's a big change in leadership style sure. and leadership yeah. models, isn't it? What, so I hear a lot about leaders need to be more data savvy, okay. which, yes. Um, what do you think are the non-negotiables that those leaders need sure. to understand to be able to manage that environment? Uh, yeah, great question. I think so. Uh, when I was preparing a bit, I, I had quite a few on my list of, of non-negotiables, but I thought I'd be simpler and just keep it to three. Um, I think the first one is like a true understanding of what a data-driven decision is mm. and what it is strictly not. So, so what is it? <laughs> very good question. It is, you know, using evidence through, you know, data that's being provided, mm. information, you consume that evidence, and then you also combine that with your own experience and your own knowledge and you make an informed decision based on what is presented to you in front of you. Okay. It's very important that it's not just doing exactly what the computer tells you to do. Mm-hmm. That's definitely not what a data-driven decision is. It's not saying the graph's pointing up, therefore let's go up mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's not what a the data-driven okay. is. And secondly, um, and probably more dangerously because it, it's kind of these data-driven decisions that are masquerading uh, sort of data-driven decisions, we say. They're not, they're, they're pseudo-data-driven decisions. They're tending to be data decisions. Exactly. Uh, and these ones are ones where people say, I've essentially made a decision mm. already, and now I need to go and look for the evidence to prove it. Okay. And uh, you can see, like, there's a guy in the White House right now that's, that's kind of doing that, saying, well, I won the election, mm. and now let's go find the charts that, that prove it. Mm-hmm. And you, you can quite see how this is a problem, but it's actually very common. You'll find in organizations if you're not careful. Hmm. So that's the first point. The second point is um, a strong data foundation. Yeah. Uh, so people are attracted to the sexy end of, of data science. Which is what, uh, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> if there is a sexy end of, of data science. So that is the, you know, the visualization, the graphs, the, the algorithms, the, the, the AI end, the machine learning end. They're, they're quite attracted to that end. Hmm. But they're not focused on sort of like all the hard work that needs to go in on, on, the, on, the, on the downstream hmm. of that, which is, you know, you know, solid data collection, data quality, you know, da- um, data governance, you know, data engineering, this kind of aspects, which is so important, not sexy, not directly valuable, but indirectly incredibly valuable because they enable everything upstream. And you can't do the sexy stuff without nailing that first bit. Uh, and the important thing to remember there is that the good data is always better than, than good algorithms, like full stop. And I'd say the last thing, so the last non-negotiable, the third one is the strong data culture. So nailing the data culture, uh, which is beyond just the data science team, the data team, is, is company-wide, is that data-driven culture where you're, you know, you're curious about why something's happening. So you, you're looking at what's in front of you, you're looking at the evidence, and you think, okay, why is this happening? What other information can I collect? to sort of expand my knowledge of this, this thing. You're skeptical about the results. You can then go back and think, okay, I can collect this information. I can integrate it this way. And you start to build this virtuous cycle. Um, and, you know, if you've nailed that and you've empowered your, your employees to be able to do that and to make the decisions on what they see, the rest kind of falls into place quite nicely because you have a, a sort of a, a market, a need pulling the sort of the, the, the technical organization to set that up. Okay. So those are my three. So they need to understand the data, yeah. what's in it, have good data. They need to understand data-driven decision-making. Exactly. And they need to understand the culture. Exactly. Yeah. So 
that sounds like quite a lot of new skills. What, sure. what, what do you think? I mean, there are hard and soft skills to that, of course. Of course yeah. What do you think is the biggest challenge in terms of bringing those new skills in for leaders particularly? First of all, we talk about like, so the, the hard skills that you, you need to bring in, so the, the core like technical skills. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting, so I'll just look at the data skills. Yeah. There are also lots of digital skills like yeah. cloud and all this kind of fun stuff. Uh, but let's just look around the stuff around data. I think what's really interesting is, first off, I once again go back 20 years, there was like one, one profile that would do this and they were called a data scientist or maybe a data engineer, depending on how you were looking at it. And today within the data space, you've got like data scientist, data analyst, analytics engineer, machine learning engineer, deep learning engineer. Like you see this proliferation of, of profiles, which I see as a very positive thing because it means it's being adopted. It means people are making it their own and they're, and they're progressing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, it's specializing. So this is, this, I think, is a really good thing. So I can't say exactly that you need 20 data scientists. No, but it's, it's interesting to see how much it's exactly. yeah. evolved. Yeah. But certainly anything within the sort of data engineering, data science, analytics space, those are very core competencies. And in your own organization, you'll know which ones you need and uh, to, to, to really focus on. But really, like, from a technical point of view, like, the challenge of deploying those skills is, is an interesting one because it's a moving target because the, the skills that he needed four years ago in this space have changed. Yeah, of course. So um, I think um, speaking from experience of when we did this at, at Airbus, mm-hmm. you know, the challenge was you need to deploy 700 data analysts in two years. They don't exist today. At that point, we had no official data scientists or analysts that, that we knew of. Mm-hmm. We did actually have some. Mm-hmm. And they need to be within their business units, within their teams, where they are today, because we need to combine domain knowledge and, and, um, and data analytics skills. So the traditional approach is to go for a classroom training, mm. which you do what you go to a university and you say, can you provide a classroom training on data analytics and competence? And you, you know, quite quickly realize that you know, it's not going to be ready in time. And by the time you actually get all this classroom stuff together, it's, you know, a year too late and you haven't got the you know the physical rooms to do it and it, it very quickly gets expensive and, and it's not going to hit 700 people in two years so with the like advent of MOOCs and online trainings it was super responsive we could very quickly deploy the skills or get the content to the people very quickly so i think like the first element was this you know very scalable solution in in online trainings and, mm-hmm. and MOOCs, but they, they don't come without their own challenges. Like, yes. I think the, I'm, I'm guessing here, but the, the pass rate of classroom training is probably for the people that actually attend, but the, the pass rate for, for classroom trainings is probably about 80, 90%. Mm-hmm. In the consumer space for MOOCs, it's 7%. Wow. So you, you've, that's the gap that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Obviously within companies, it's a bit different. So we you're not faced with the same challenge with a classroom training as you are with a with an online training so the the real key thing was that all that agility that we we were getting from online training came at a price that retention rates and pass rates were a lot lower so we really focused on saying well we're just going to get started and we're going to have a feedback loop coming from our guys who are training and they're going to tell us like why it's working why it's not working um so, for example, we found that some people, when they went through the first wave, they said, you know, the level's too high. I wasn't ready for this. So we, we added an entry-level test to make sure that you were ready. And we also provided a training course to train you how to get to that level. We found that people were saying, I don't have someone to talk to directly. I just have a, you know, a video and I don't know how to do it. So we set up, we, we really invested in, in sort of 
community training, putting people in the same room, coaching each other, learning mm -hmm. from each other. We found that managers weren't allowing their guys to train and they were sort of eating up all their time. So we lobbied managers to try and like, and senior managers to really allow their guys to do it. So I think if, if you're trying to follow this kind of process and put in training, like don't just take those three things and mm -hmm. do them, but just really focus on that feedback loop. Learn from what your people are saying. Mm. get started get going and you know we moved from like a 50% pass rate to like a 70% pass rate because we, we were listening to what the guys were saying so you're basically an agile loop of sort of yeah. the leading startup build measure learn triangles or cycle should I yeah, say exactly. yeah. I mean time is running but I just want to touch this last point because I think it's really important it's your third non-negotiable around data culture sure. because I think the cultural element of that is really important and I, I can't speak to you without asking you my favorite question of how does data and data-driven ways of working contribute to a more inclusive environment? Because if I look at the data culture, sure. it's more collaborative, it's a learning culture. So how can we get data to help us make a more inclusive environment? I think it's a I mean, super question. And, and uh, by no means am I an expert on the <laughs> subject. So, And there's a lot of people out there talking with a lot of But I would love your opinion. Sure. Um, so first of all, like, like a data-driven environment is by its nature very inclusive like you have to have a variety of opinions you have to have that skepticism and you you have to sort of like mm -hmm. dig into the data and have those people that are inclusive i would say like using data to become more inclusive is, is quite a, a pitfall if you're not careful as well though i think like so first off if we imagine like say for example you you have to first realize that your data is in itself biased so by its nature, your data is biased because if we just look at, say, for example, people data, all of the data that you have in terms of people are purely based on the people that have been in your company. So that in itself is a biased data set compared to general population of people. It's a picture of the existing people. Exactly. Okay. And, and past people, yeah. obviously. So if you're trying to push to a more inclusive environment in itself... Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that the people who are in the loop, the people who are making human decisions, uh, that, that humans are making human decisions, mm. should we say that? So the first thing is that your data is biased, and there's unconscious biases, and also that your algorithms are not robust enough to make these kinds of decisions. So an example is, if you want to say, let's um, train a, an algorithm that's going to help me screen CVs, yeah. and the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to you know, collect all the CVs of all the people that I've joined this company in the last 20 years, all that's going to do is, is going to predict that the people are the exact people that you've already got in that situation. So you already have like a, if you're trying to move away from your existing situation to a more inclusive situation, your data will just propagate the existing situation if you're not careful. Okay, so you have to be aware of that. It's not just going to tell you what, you, what it thinks no. is right. And so like data in itself is, is, is purely like a shadow of events that have happened or a culture. So for when it comes to people's data, it, it's a shadow of a culture that mm. was in place. And so I do think it's important to dig into that mm. data and observe like what were the biases that we were looking into and, and why was that happening? But I think it's, it's very sort of, it's a wrong decision to then make those targets to then say, we're now going to use them to be targets of things we fulfill because you, you'll end up tackling the target and not addressing the culture, which is the underlying problem. So you're really trying to solve a culture and you have these indicators of what that culture is really like. And if you just focus on the, on the metrics, which is the output of the culture, mm. then you'll just solve the metrics and you won't solve the underlying culture. So we should be using those data points and those outputs as insight 
Definitely look at it as insight. Definitely look at it as almost like an auditing method, but don't use it as input to sort of like to try and target. This is what we need to get. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that input. And just as a last question, do you have a last piece of advice for any leaders looking to get more data savvy? I think just just get your hands on some stuff. Like I think, uh, especially with things like AI algorithms and stuff like this, mm. there's, there's a big hype around them. I mean, the sexy part. The sexy part of, of uh, data science. I think a lot of people get attracted to mm. to that and, and they kind of think of this world of AI algorithms being like, let's talking with a robot and, and that mm. kind of stuff. And I think once you get past that, that hype cycle, Mm. That's really when the interesting stuff gets started because you you get more involved in like what does this actually do and what can it achieve and once you hit that area you're really going to hit the value of of what this kind of stuff. So I would just actually say like get involved. Have if you have data projects at your company already, look at them, get someone to talk through like how it works, how the different blocks work, and and really just have a few examples that you can sort of play around with. Okay, so get involved and get curious. Get curious. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much. Thanks, Henry. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.